church. In our ongoing study of 1 Thessalonians this morning, we find our way to chapter 4. I'd encourage you to take your Bibles, turn there with me if you would. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, we'll be looking at verses 13 through 18. And if you have found your way there, would you join me as we stand together for the reading of God's holy and errant an infallible word. First Thessalonians chapter 4, beginning at verse 13, Paul writes, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, so you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Any questions? Let's pray together. Our God and our Father, what a glorious idea, concept, truth, reality your word has set before us this morning. We do pray, Father, that you would help us to do business with you. We've not just come to church, we've come to you. This is the Lord's day which Christians have celebrated for millennia and will continue to do so should the Lord tarry. But the Lord's day will one day give way to the day of the Lord. We pray, Father, again, for eyes to see, ears to hear, hearts to believe and receive the truth. Pray for the one who preaches his sins like all of ours are many. It is by your grace that we're yours. We pray, Father, this morning that you would capture our hearts, not just with interesting truth, but more, Father, with a sense of the nearness, the certainty, and the need to be ready for this inevitable event. Again, we pray that you would not just challenge us, but change us, not just confront us, but conform us to the image of the one who will return. And we ask these things in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. Please be seated. Last week, I reminded you that chapter 4 of 1 Thessalonians actually begins the second and last final major section of this book in which we find the Apostle Paul answering both questions and observations. The questions have come from the Thessalonians themselves. The observations have come from Timothy's time with the Thessalonian believers. These questions and observations had reached Paul 
When Timothy returned to Paul from Thessalonica, a trip there, and returning back to Paul, he comes back to Paul in the city of Corinth, and it is from Corinth that Paul writes this letter, 1 Thessalonians. As we saw last week, specific questions and observations dealt with things like sexual morality among Christians, the love of the brethren, and labor, the ethic of labor. This morning, our text really moves towards questions. Questions that came to Paul from the Thessalonians himself. These questions deal with the destiny of Christians who have died, the second coming of Christ, and the nature of the day of the Lord. This morning we begin unfolding some of that. Again, these questions seem to rise from the fact that the Apostle Paul on his second missionary journey was only in Thessalonica for three Sabbaths, that's three weeks. They had three weeks of teaching from Paul, this church did. And then Paul and his companions had to flee for their lives. A riot arose in Thessalonica over the gospel and Paul had to flee for his life. So he leaves this church, these believers, with three weeks of teaching. And it appears that during these three weeks, Paul had, among other things, taught them about eschatology, the biblical doctrine of last things. He had given them an overview of end times. However, because of his need to flee, his teaching was incomplete. And so it is between Paul's short time with the Thessalonians and now him writing this epistle later on, what has happened is believers in Thessalonica have died. Some have ceased to live. And the combination of this, believers who have died, Jesus hasn't returned has given great sorrow among these believers. They don't understand the relationship of all of this. And you'll notice verse 13, Paul talks about not grieving as do the rest who have no hope. Or in verse 18, he talks about comforting one another with these words. And so yes, this text is eschatological, but it is also very pastoral. He's concerned about Christians who are grieving because they don't possess the entirety of the truth. And to make matters even more intense, we know that throughout 1 Thessalonians and 2nd, Paul is dealing with persecution of the worst kind. These believers are being persecuted by the unbelieving world. And it's very possible some of these believers that have died have actually died as martyrs for the cause of Christ. And as such, you would have believers who have died because of the cause of Christ, and those who survive don't know what will happen to them. They've died for Christ, but what will happen in their death concerning Christ? Have they missed the second coming? Have they somehow been excluded from the second coming and the resurrection of the dead because they're not alive when Christ returns? And these are the questions. Sorrow and wrong ideas have arisen in Thessalonica, and they're asking Paul for clarities. They have questions. And again, these questions have reached Paul with Timothy's return. And for us sitting here this morning, today, the Thessalonians' grief, their sorrow, their confusion, their questions, really for us this morning, really give cause for a a great blessing. Because their grief and sorrow and confusion and questions really give rise to an occasion, an occasion in which Paul is able to articulate biblical eschatology. And so it is from our text this morning, beginning on into next week, Lord willing, 
Paul gives us eschatological information that is not found anywhere else in the New Testament. And so even in God's sovereignty, causing Paul to flee for his life, and then as a result, giving an occasion for Paul to articulate these truths, we are blessed. We are blessed. And what he writes in these verses is consistent. It's consistent with all that we have in the New Testament concerning the end time. And that is this single point, and you must own this, that the centerpiece of all New Testament eschatology is always and only the second coming of Jesus Christ. In fact, what takes place before the second coming of Christ is relatively vague in the New Testament. Even right before us in these verses, the Thessalonians are asking, what happens to a believer when they die? And when Paul answers, he immediately jumps to the future. He immediately jumps to the second coming. Paul doesn't deal with what we call the intermediate state. He doesn't deal with issues in our world, geopolitical issues. He jumps immediately to that event, the second coming of Jesus Christ. In Romans chapter 8, you can turn there or just listen. But let me give you an overview of how Paul understood biblical eschatology. In Romans 8, Paul, in verse 11, talks about the coming resurrection of the dead. He says this, verse 11, But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through the spirit who dwells in you. So Jesus is the first fruits of the resurrection. And when he returns, the spirit of God that dwells in us will give life as it did to Jesus to us. In verse 16 through 18, Paul talks about our future glorification. The spirit himself testifies, verse 16 through 18, with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. And if indeed we suffer with him, so that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider the sufferings of this present time not to be worthy to be compared with, here it is, the glory that is to be revealed to us. Second coming. Again, verse 19 through 22, Paul talks about the world, a redeemed world waiting for uh, an unredeemed world waiting to be redeemed, an old world waiting for a new earth, a new heaven. Verse 19, for the anxious longing of creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God, waiting for that moment when Christ returns and the dead are raised. The whole universe waits for that moment. For the creation, our creation, was subject to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. And he subjected it, listen to these two words, in hope. That the creation itself will also be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of of childbirth, and it does so until now. To this very day, our world is subject to sin. It's a fallen world, and it can't wait to be set free. Verse 23, not only does creation groan for the second coming, but Paul says so do we. Verse 23, and not only this, but we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for the adoption of sons, the redemption of our body. Boy, the older I get, the more I groan. 
Verse 24 and 25, the second coming is our means of a future hope. It says this, for in hope we have been saved. We've been saved with a hope. But that hope is not seen. For he who hopes in that which he already sees is not hope. But we hope for what we have not seen. And with perseverance we wait for it eagerly. Verse 30. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he justified. And these whom he justified, he will glorify. And then Paul goes on to explain in poetic prouse unequaled how nothing can separate us from this promise. Nothing. Again, what Paul writes about the eschatology, the centerpiece of it all, is the second coming. Christians wait for it, long for it, groan for it. The world, the universe groans for it, the second coming. And again, the whole of biblical promise really rests on two single events. The first coming of Jesus Christ. And then the second coming of Jesus Christ. And it is with the first coming of Jesus Christ that the kingdom of God is inaugurated. But with the second coming of Jesus Christ, the kingdom of God will be consummated. Again, the New Testament profoundly emphasizes the centerpiece of all eschatology is the second coming. More than any other end time event, more than whatever people have concocted or believed or imagined, the second coming is the centerpiece. Somebody has said that the second coming of Jesus Christ is mentioned in one out of every 25 verses in the New Testament. Every single book in the New Testament, every single book in the entire New Testament, either explicitly or implicitly, refers to the second coming of Christ. And frankly, no natural reading of the New Testament would or should lead anyone to ultimately anticipate anything in the future other than the second coming. The second coming is held out for us as truly the consummation. And with the second coming, we have the resurrection of dead, the final judgment, the reversal of the curse since the time of Adam, new heaven, new earth, and the fullness of the kingdom in eternity, which the Old Testament ties to the second coming. When the New Testament speaks of the second coming of Christ, it has one or two objectives. It talks about the timing of the second coming, and it talks about the event of the second coming. The timing and the event of the second coming. So what about the timing of the second coming? The Bible speaks of the second coming of Christ in really powerful Simple ideas. For instance, the timing of the second coming is called, listen to this, the end of the age. The end of the age. For instance, Matthew 13, 38 and following, where Jesus said, The field is the world, and as for the good seed, these are the sons of the kingdom. The tares are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed it is the devil. And at the harvest, at the second coming, is the end of the age where the reapers are angels, so just as the tares are gathered up and burned, so it will be at the end of the age. The second coming is also referred to as, get this, 
the end. Matthew 10, 22, you will be hated uh, by all because of my name, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. The second coming is also called the day. Romans 2, 16, on the day when according to my gospel, Jesus will judge, or God will judge the secrets of men through Jesus Christ. It's called the day of the Lord. It's called the last day. It's called the great and awesome day of the Lord. And so together, what is the second coming of Christ? It is that great, awesome, final, last day as we know life in this world. Um, that's the time. What about the event? Unfortunately, I have to unscramble an egg. And in order to do so, and I do so cautiously, but I do so with conviction, you may not agree, that's okay, we're all privileged to our own opinions, but allow me as the pastor of this church to, to unpack what I believe the scripture teaches about the event. And we need to ask a question, and the question is this, does the New Testament teach that the second coming of Christ will occur in two phases? Some say yes. Particularly what we would call premillennial dispensationalists, they say yes. According to their eschatology, their two-phase coming of Christ consists of, first, a secret rapture. The word rapture means to rob, to snatch, to kidnap, to steal. And the idea is that Jesus comes as a thief in the night. He doesn't come all the way to earth, but he stays in the sky. His purpose is to call Christians to himself from the dead and the living. And then Jesus with the dead and living Christians of so U-turn in the sky returns back to heaven. And he returns back to heaven for a seven-year period. Jesus in the church during the seven years, according to their theology, engaging in what is called the marriage supper of the Lamb. But meanwhile, back on earth, the unbelievers who are left, tribulation breaks out. And it's not until, in their theology, not until the armies of the world have encircled national Israel when it is all doom and loss that Jesus finally comes back for the second phase and defeats them all. So in their theology, the second coming finally occurs, uh, but even then, it's not the end. Even after the second of the two-phase coming in their theology, after the second coming, you have a thousand years, you have wars, you have judges, you have uh, over the earth, you have universal language, temples rebuilt in Jerusalem, sacrifices reestablished, a worldwide economy, prosperity, babies are being born, there's new transformed nations arising during this idea. Where does all this come from? A two-phase second coming? Well, the truth of the matter, it really began only a couple hundred years ago with the British Plymouth Brethren, John Nelson Darby, around 1830. And when it reached the American shore, premillennial dispensationalism, by the way, Plymouth Brethren didn't believe in an educated clergy. So he wasn't a, a taught man. He just came up with a system. And it was largely rejected in England, finally reached America, a few people jumped on board, and basically out of premillennial dispensation, when we reached American shores, it went three places. It went to the northeast at Moody Bible. It went to the south to Dallas, Texas, Dallas Theological Seminary, and it went to the far west, Biola, Bible Institute of Los Angeles. And that's how it reached, three places, and it took off. 
If any of this interests you, recently a man by the name of Humble, Daniel Humble wrote a book called The Rise and Fall of Dispensationalism, uh, colon, How the Battle Over End Times Shaped a Nation, talking about America. And he masterfully describes how this obscure reading and understanding of scripture, this obscure system of theology, came from nowhere and captured our nation. And there's a very good chance that many of you here were raised being taught premillennial dispensationalism. Um, what does it teach? Let me show you what it teaches. This is what they believe. Starts here. This is what the return of Jesus looks like. Phase one. And this is what the return of Jesus looks like. Phase two. Of course, color color print took place between the two phases everybody got that this is what I believe the chart should look like okay and if you maybe aren't interested in buying an entire book and consuming and reading it I encourage you if this interests you at all the Rise and Fall of Dispensation and How a Battle Over End Time Shaped a Nation by Daniel Hummel. You can go online YouTube and listen to an interview between Albert Moeller, who's the president of Southern Baptist Seminary, and him go through this. And even Moeller, who's a Baptist, says, you're right. You're right. And of course, people have made lots of money off premillennial dispensational books, bestsellers, and so forth. So back to business. What does God's word tell us about the second coming? The Bible, in the New Testament in particular, uses three words repeatedly to describe the event of the second coming. The first word is the word parousia, which is translated coming. It's used seven times in the New Testament in reference to the second coming of Christ. An example would be, for instance, James 5.8, where James says, You too be patient, strengthen your hearts for the parousia, for the coming of the Lord is near. A second word would be the word apocalypsis, from where we get the word apocalypse. It means the revelation or the revealing. The revealing of Jesus Christ. Used seven times in the New Testament in reference to the second coming of Christ. An example of that, 1 Peter 1 7, where Peter writes, So that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in the praise and glory and honor at the apocalypsis, at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The third word is the word epiphania, from where we get the English word epiphany, it means appearing, used six times in the New Testament in reference to the second coming. An example, Titus 2.13, looking for our blessed hope and the epiphania, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. Everybody get that light? Our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. And so the event of the second coming is described as a coming, a revelation, an appearing. And this imagery of all this is set in the New Testament using ancient or Eastern realities, particularly the coming of a king to a city, an imperial visit. A royal visit in the ancient world where great generals or emperors or whatever might come 
And with that would come great honor, great pomp and circumstance, celebrations, banquets, speeches being given, festive attire worn by the the city, competitive games were held, sacrifices offered, productions, arches were built, buildings were constructed, roads were adorned. I mean, it was a big event, a royal visit. It is that imagery that the New Testament uses to talk about the second coming of Christ. And far from being some secret two-phase coming of Christ, the arrival of Christ is unmistakable. Even in our text, it's a noisy event. Verse 16, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout. The text seems to indicate that it is Jesus Christ himself who shouts. Verse 16, with the voice of of the archangel. Places like Mark 8.38 tells us that Jesus will return with his holy angels. And 3, verse 16, C, and with the trumpet of God. Jesus shouting, the voice of the archangel, and the trumpet of God. It's unmistakable. And why does Paul say that? He's saying to the Thessalonians, listen, you haven't missed anything. You'll know when it takes place. But Paul zeroes in on the, the third of those noises. Yes, Jesus shouts, yes, the archangel voices himself, but the trumpet of God, which was not primarily a musical instrument, but primarily a military instrument, a military call for command. And you'll notice verse 16, with the trumpet of God, it says this, and the dead in Christ will rise first. With the trumpet of God, the dead in Christ will rise to attention. And not everyone will rise but those specifically, verse 16, who have died in Christ. Just like 1 Corinthians 15, 18, those who have fallen asleep in Jesus, or Revelation 13, 4, those who have died in the Lord. Believers, at that moment, with the trumpet of God, will rise first. And with that resurrection, you can imagine that there will be transformational life. That body that has been deceased and gone for millennia, whatever might be the case, will be made whole and glorified. And again, this scene about the resurrection of life doesn't speak to the intermediate state. It doesn't speak about any of that being absent from the body, being present Lord. It, it primarily, again, it points again to that ultimate event, the coming of Christ. And with the coming of Christ... Our bodies will be raised imperishable. And I know some of you may disagree with this. Some of you think about when I die, do I want to be buried? Do I want to be cremated? Personally, I don't think any of that matters. Because when Christ returns, those who are in Christ will be raised. Christians for millennia have been burned to death, drowned at sea, you name it, fed to wild animals. Listen, If the gospel and eternal life is based on how you're buried, then I've misunderstood the entirety of the gospel. Everybody say amen. Amen. But listen to Paul in 1 Corinthians 15. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive, but each to his own order. Christ the firstfruits, and then after that, those who are at Christ's coming. At his coming. At his coming. No two-phase coming, just at his coming. And then comes the end. 
The end. The end. Christ rose, and at his coming, we who are in Christ will rise, and then comes the end. And then he will, it says, hand over the kingdom of God and the Father when he has abolished all rule and all authority and all power. The end. And so here's the picture of the event. Jesus returns noisily with his holy angels, and with the sounding of the trumpet of God, there is the resurrection from the dead of deceased Christians in Christ, and then those who are alive will rise up to meet him as he arrives. Those who are alive will also be resurrected, glorified, join Jesus, join the holy angel, join those who have raised, uh, who are dead in Christ as he comes to earth. Again, this is the royal coming. And this royal coming is all through the scriptures. For instance, it's anticipated in Isaiah chapter 40, where it says this, A voice is calling, clear the way for the Lord in the wilderness, make smooth in the desert a highway for our God. Let every valley be lifted up, every mountain and hill be made low. Let the rough ground become a plain. Let the rugged terrain become a broad valley. Then the glory of the Lord will be revealed. And all flesh, all flesh will see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken it. The idea is here is the via sacra, the entrance for the king to enter the city. What do they do? They go prepare the, the road. All the ruts are filled. All the ruts lowered. All the, all the crevices are filled. In other words, the place is made a flat plain for the entrance of this great and glorious royal king. And when he comes, all flesh will see it. And when he comes, the glory of the Lord will be revealed. The royal coming wasn't only anticipated in Isaiah 40, but it was also rehearsed in the Gospels. For instance, John 12, on the next day, the large crowd who had come to the feast when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him and began to shout, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. Palm Sunday was a rehearsal. People go out to greet Jesus as he comes to the royal city. The king has come. And you remember the, the Pharisees tell Jesus, you've got to tell these people to calm down and be quiet. And Jesus says, if I tell them to be quiet, even the rocks will cry out. Not only was the royal coming anticipated in Isaiah 40, rehearsed in John 12, but it's described in Revelation 19 where it says this, And I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on him is called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire, on his head are many diadems, that's crowns. By the way, how many crowns are on his head? All of them. And he has a name written on him, which no one knows but himself. He's clothed in a robe dipped in blood. His name is called the Word of God. The armies which are in heaven, that's angels and the dead in Christ, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. From his mouth came a sharp sword, so with it he might strike the nations. He will rule him with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fierceness of God's wrath, the Almighty. And on his name and on his thigh is a name which is written, King of kings and Lord of lords, all diadems are his anticipated isaiah 40 rehearsed john 12 described revelation 19 this is unmistakable an unmistakable description of the parousia the coming 
Apocalypse is the revelation, the epiphania, the appearing of a coming king who makes his promised and inevitable future imperial visit, this great royal coming. For instance, look with me carefully at verse 17. Verse 17 says, Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds. Listen to this. To meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall always be with the Lord. The verb, to meet, to meet the Lord in the air, is the Greek word apontesis. Apontesis. And it literally means to meet someone. Or to greet someone. Or to welcome someone. Or to receive someone. Um, when people come to your house and you go out the door to greet them, you do that when somebody special comes. Amen? You, you greet them. Uh, once you greet them, your visitor doesn't jump in his car and go home. Hopefully. <laughs> what do you do? You, you greet them and you come with him as he arrives. To meet the Lord in the air, to welcome the Lord in the air, to receive the Lord in the air. Just as those carrying palm branches and hosannas in their lips came to meet Jesus, he didn't turn around and go back to the Galilee, he came and entered Jerusalem. He met them in the air. The same word is used by Jesus in the parable in Matthew 25, where it says this, the kingdom of heaven will be compared to ten virgins who took lamps and went out to meet to meet, Upantesis, the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish, five of them prudent. The foolish took their lamps. They had no oil with them, but the prudent took oil flasks along with their lamps. In verse 10, and while they were going away to make a purchase, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the wedding feast, and the door boom, was shut to meet the Lord near. Um, one final thought, and I'm done this morning. What will the coming of Christ really be like? What will it really be like? In Revelation 6.14, it says this, that the sky will split apart like a scroll when it is rolled up. And then there will be all the unbelieving kings of the world, the unbelievers of the world, crying out for rocks and mountains to fall upon them, to hide themselves from Christ hide themselves from the presence of him who sits upon the throne in the wrath of the Lamb. Of the Lamb. And then it asks the question, when this happens, who will be able to stand? How is it that all the kings of the world will know that the time has come? How is it that all the kings of the world will be crying out for something to separate them, to hide themselves, to obscure their presence from the coming of Christ. The idea of the event of Jesus coming actually is more like the opening of a stage curtain that reveals that which has been hidden, that which has been unknown, unseen, will be opened and be revealed. It says in Revelation eleven nineteen that the temple of God, which is in heaven, was opened. 
Revelation 19.11, and I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it is called Faithful and True. I believe the second coming of Christ is something that you and I can't even possibly imagine. In which the curtain will be drawn open, and that which has previously been hidden from all of humanity will be revealed. Beale says when Christ returns, the old world reality is ripped away. And the new, previously hidden reality is revealed to the world all at once. When Christ returns, it's not an old world reality in which he returns. It's something that you and I cannot imagine. Revelation 1.7 says, Behold, he will come with the clouds, and every eye will see him. <coughs> and all the tribes of the earth will mourn. So let it be, amen. Clouds in the Old Testament, New Testament, refer to God's supernatural, glorious revelation of himself. Unimaginable. Moses hidden in the cleft of the rock, unperceivable, unreceivable. Exodus 16.10, it came about as Aaron spake to the whole congregation of the sons of Israel. They looked towards the wilderness, and behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. That's the Shekinah glory of God. Unapproachable light. With the second coming of Christ, the scripture repeatedly tells us that every eye will see him. How so? How so? Does Jesus do a worldwide tour when he returns? L.A., then to Hong Kong, Rio, Anchorage, Tokyo, Mumbai, the Serengeti. Is he like Santa Claus? How is it that every eye will see him and every knee and every tongue confess? How in the world? Interestingly, in John's description of the new heaven, new earth, he says, And I saw a holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven, made ready as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, listen to this, the tabernacle of God is among us. And he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people. And God himself will be among them, be among all of us. The world of Christianity, past, present, and future. Revelation 22, 5, there'll be no sun, there'll be no moon, for the Lord himself will illuminate everything. How can that be other than in a new reality? God will tabernacle with the second coming of Christ over this new reality. Jesus said the second coming will be like lightning that flashes from the east to the west. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. In my mind's eye, and all we have is what we have, the closest picture that we have of the second coming will be something like this. And that is when Christ hung on that cross, or as Christ hung on the cross, what happened? God, from the top to the bottom, rent that temple veil in half. And that which had never been seen, that which was unknown and hidden, was made visible. I believe that when the Lord returns, the unseen world, the fullness of the glory of God, the fullness of the glory of Christ, the fullness of sin, no wonder kings are hiding for rocks and mountains to fall on them. The fullness of it all 
will be made known. And the world as an orb will be laid flat as a map. And God will tabernacle and illuminate it all as the sun. This is going to be a day. The picture in this scene that Paul is presenting to them is not a picture where some deceased or living Christians travel halfway around the world to meet Jesus. But the picture is that all deceased and all living Christians through all time in this new reality will have immediate access to him. We will all see him and be with him in the new reality. Is it all mysterious? Oh, yeah. I've not seen it, nor have you. And if somebody tells you they have, run. And no wonder it is that Zechariah 14 says this, in that day, there will be no light, the illuminaries will dwindle, for it will be, what an understatement, it will be a unique day. <laughs> yeah, it'll be unique, all right, which, the, which is known only to the Lord. Let's bow our heads and hearts in a word of prayer. Before I pray, whenever God reveals these truths to us in his word, they are never separated from God's own appeal of grace to you, to the reader. And that is, make sure, if there's anything important in your life, make sure that you are ready. Make sure that when this unique day takes place, you're not on the wrong end of it all. By faith in Christ. Our God and our Father, again, we ask that we would not just be challenged this morning, but leave here changed. Not just confronted by all this, but conformed to the image of the one who will come. Conformed to the image of Christ which is the only way we can be prepared. It will come. It will come. Peter says some people mock Christians, the word of God, because he hasn't come yet. To which Peter says, remember, the world was once flooded. God in his wrath has come. But this earth is reserved, and the coming of Christ will take place in total certainty. Father, here we are, just a small group of people in a small city in, a, in, a, in, a, in, a, in, a, in the state of Georgia. Uh, but we sit here this morning with your precious, eternal uh, truth before us. And we can leave here unaffected. Uh, we can leave here with novel ideas. We can leave here with eschatological arguments. We can leave here with a whole lot of things. But God, my heart, I know from your word, by the grace of Christ, your heart is that we leave here thinking about being ready for that day. And that's our, that's our prayer, Father. Prepare us. And uh, we uh, ask, God, in this crazy, mixed-up world that uh, you would help us to see the writing on the wall. Father, even as we bow before you, we have multiple wars going on in our world. We're watching, Father, the complete reversal of your laws, your morality, even nature itself being upheavaled 
by sinners who shake their fists in the face of Almighty God. Father, we live in a day in which it's like the days of Noah, where even though all of this is going on, people are eating, drinking, giving in marriage as if there's nothing to be prepared for. And yet, as Christians, Bible-believing Christians, we know, we sense the urgency of all of this. Help us to be prepared. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you join me as we stand together for the benediction? My brothers and sisters, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his counts on you and give you peace. Amen.